The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, September 6, 2020, on the basis of Matthew 16, verses 21 through 26. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. It's not Christmas and it's not Easter, but next Monday, September 14th, it's kind of a big day for a lot of Christians all over the world. It's known as the Festival of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. And among other things, it commemorates the day when the true cross, the cross that Jesus died on, was discovered just outside Jerusalem. History has it that in the year 326 AD, it was the Roman Empress Helena, mother of Constantine, who took a trip to the Holy Land, started digging around a little bit, and sure enough, discovered Jesus' cross. Actually, she discovered three crosses, Jesus' cross and two for the criminals who were crucified alongside Jesus. And so the big question was, whose was whose? Well, thankfully, the bishop in Jerusalem at that time, a man by the name of Macarius, had a brilliant idea. He brought a woman who had been suffering from some sort of terrible disease for quite some time, and he had her touch all three crosses. And sure enough, lo and behold, when she touched one of the crosses, instantly she was healed. Instantly, the disease just left her. And so, of course, that cross was Jesus' cross. So they figured. That story about the discovery of the true cross probably sounds pretty believable to you right up until that last part. The idea that an inanimate object, a block of wood that had been buried beneath rubble for the better part of three centuries could just dispense healing power to someone who touched it, well, it sort of takes that story that sounds like it could be in the realm of real history and puts it into the realm of of what sure sounds like myth. Well, believe it or not, today I'm going to ask you to believe, actually Jesus is going to ask you to believe, something that seems even less believable. We're in the middle of this series that's entitled Dialed In. It's all about escaping the noise and getting on the same frequency as Jesus. And today, specifically, we're doing that when it comes to the topic of suffering. Certainly, there is a lot of noise about suffering that comes from the world around us. Where it comes from, whose fault is it, and what God is or should be doing about it. And yet, the suffering that Jesus wants to talk about today is a little bit different from what we normally hear from the world. Normally, when, when suffering comes up, it's what we might call the external kind of suffering, the uncontrollable kind of suffering, suffering that happens to us in spite of all of our best efforts to try and prevent it. Jesus wants to talk about a different kind of suffering, and on this kind of suffering, the world is almost completely silent. Why? Because to the world, this kind of suffering seems absurd, ridiculous, completely out of the question, because it's a suffering that you actually pick. It's a suffering that you willingly choose. 
And not only that, but Jesus wants us to believe today something that seems even less believable than that a block of wood could just dispense healing power. He wants us to believe that when we come into contact with this kind of suffering, it does actually deliver blessings into our life. And so when it comes to this type of suffering, Jesus doesn't just want to sort of reach out and and touch it just a little bit the way we might test a hot stove to see what it actually feels like. He doesn't want us to just come sort of close to it, but at the same time remain our, keep our social distancing so that we don't get fully exposed. No, he wants us to actually wholeheartedly, gladly, joyfully, completely embrace this kind of suffering. As we look at these verses from Matthew 16 this morning, we're going to see that Jesus wants us to embrace the path that leads to pain. In fact, that's what Jesus himself was going to do. As you heard Matthew say, this was the time in Jesus' ministry when he started to be completely upfront with his disciples about where his path was leading. He was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to suffer many things at the hands of the Jewish leaders, and he was going to die on the cross. Jesus was willing to embrace that path, because, as he told his disciples, it was necessary. It was necessary for him. It was also necessary for them. Jesus went on in these verses to say that anyone who would want to follow Jesus, anyone who would want to be his disciple, must also willingly take up their cross. Now, does that mean that we need to be ready and willing to suffer and die for our faith in Jesus. Well, it, it might mean that, and we should be ready for that. But Jesus is talking about something different. Jesus explains that phrase, take up your cross, by saying it is the exact same thing as denying yourself. Jesus says that taking up your cross is like taking your goals and your dreams, your ambitions and your desires in life, and willingly doing to those things the very same thing that a first century Roman crucifixion would have forcibly done to those things. It means denying them. It means letting go of them. It means setting them down. It means putting them to death. Now, before you think to yourself, well, whew, I'm glad that Jesus isn't saying that we actually have to be ready and waiting to go through a painful crucifixion. What Jesus talks about in these verses is actually a death of sorts. It is a death to self and a very painful and excruciating one at that. Now, why would we need to do that? When would we need to take our, our desires and our ambitions and deny them or put them to death? What's wrong with having desires and ambitions? Well, nothing, except that sometimes those desires and those ambitions collide with the clear word of God. So maybe I desire to get revenge on someone for the wrong that they have done to me or to hold a grudge against them. Maybe I desire to enjoy all the blessings of marriage, but outside of the commitment of marriage. Maybe I desire to sleep in or watch TV or go golfing, at least when it's sunny outside on Sunday mornings, instead of making time to gather with God's people to hear God's word. Maybe I desire to have that new phone 
or that new TV or that new car instead of generously supporting the spread of the gospel through my offerings. Sometimes our desires collide with the word of God. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they collide with our neighbor's need. So at the end of the long day, uh, long day, I might just want to sit down on the couch and relax, but my spouse wants to talk and my spouse needs me to listen. I might wake up in the morning and have a million things on my mind and a million things that I need to get done, but my kids might need just a little bit more time, attention, patience, and care from their dad. I might want my kids to get into a great college and make the varsity team, but what my, ki my kids really need from me most is to see what a lifelong, wholehearted commitment to the Word of God looks like. I might really be in a hurry in the checkout line at the grocery store, but that old man who's in front of me who's talking on and on and on with the checkout person, that might be the only real conversation he has all week. I might have very strong opinions about things like pandemics and politics, and I might really want to express those opinions and exercise those opinions freely, and yet I am surrounded by people who need to see from me, not first and foremost all of my stances, but who need to see my Savior. Nothing wrong inherently with any of those desires or any of those ambitions, and yet very often they collide with with someone. Maybe that someone is a dear friend or relative. Maybe that someone is a perfect stranger. Maybe that someone is even a person we might label an opponent or even an enemy. And yet that someone, that neighbor, needs me to deny those desires and deny those ambitions in love and service and sacrifice to them. Ouch. That hurts. That's a cross that truly carries with it a whole lot of pain. It's no wonder that cross is often met by Jesus' disciples with rebuke. As was often the case, and in fact we saw it last week, Peter is the one who stands up and speaks for the entire group. After Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem to die on the cross, Peter pulls him aside and actually begins to rebuke him. Jesus, if, if anyone should be spared something painful like this, it should be you. I mean, sure, maybe other people deserve to go through something like that, but if anyone should be exempt from that kind of pain and suffering, Jesus, it should be you. And in response, Jesus doesn't back down. In fact, he doubles down. He triples down. He quadruples down. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? It's not. What Peter was telling Jesus to do was virtually identical to what Satan had told Jesus to do when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Satan had said to Jesus, I will give you all of the kingdoms and all of the wealth and all of the glory and majesty in the whole wide world if you just bow down and worship me. In other words, everything Jesus was after only without having to go to the cross. So that path that would avoid the pain of self-denial is not just some alternative path that we might just as easily take. That's the path that our enemy wants us to take. That's the path that Satan is luring us down. Then Jesus says to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. Last week when Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus called Peter a rock. Peter's confession 
of Christ was the very thing on which Jesus was going to build his church. Well, this week, Jesus again calls Peter a rock, but not the kind of rock you want to build on, the kind of rock you will stumble on, the kind of rock you will trip over if it remains in your path. So again, that path that would seek to avoid the pain of self-denial is not just some alternative path that's just as good as the one Jesus wants for us. It's a path that is destined to cause our downfall. Finally, Jesus says that Peter has in mind not the things of God, but only human concerns. Last week, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus praised Peter and said, this was revealed to you from heaven. This is heavenly wisdom coming out of your mouth. Now Jesus says, this is human folly that you are uttering. Peter could dispute all he wanted, but Jesus made it very clear the necessity of this path, the necessity of the cross was indisputable. I don't know if I would have had the nerve to rebuke Jesus directly the way that Peter did. And yet when I look at my life, I realize that I do very much rebuke Jesus about what he teaches here. Only I do it in the way that I do so many of the things that I do when it comes to what Jesus instructs. I do it a little bit more passive aggressively. I do it sort of the way I sometimes react or maybe certainly want to react. When you see those road construction signs that are so common this time of year, the ones that say, road closed ahead, local traffic only. Well, sure, other people should probably listen to those signs. I mean, we just can't have everybody zooming through here while the construction workers are working, right? But, but I'm really in a hurry today. And I don't travel this route often. I don't even know the alternative route that I could take to get around. And so I, instead of listening to that sign, I just try and kind of sneak my way through and be on my way. So when opportunities for self-denial come up, rather than listening to Jesus' words, how easy is it instead to sort of take those ambitions and those desires and those goals and those dreams and pack them all up in the back of your car and try and wind your way through life, avoiding any and all collisions either with the word of God or with your neighbor's need. So that somehow you can emerge on the other side unscathed and, un and intact, not having had to give up really anything at all that was worth all that much to you in the first place. Friends, whether we are willing to rebuke Jesus directly as Peter did or a little bit more passive aggressively, we need to pay careful attention to Jesus' words. The necessity of this path, this cross is indisputable. The alternative path is the one our enemy wants us to take. The alternative path is the one that will cause us to stumble. The, the alternative path is the one that has been drawn not with heavenly wisdom, but with earthly folly. The necessity of this path is indisputable. Okay, fine. I'll do it, Jesus. But it sort of feels like the way you feel when you come up to those, one of those road construction signs, and it's not just the sign, but there's a construction worker standing there, or maybe some sort of traffic control officer, and they're actually pointing you in the direction that you need to go instead of passing through. Okay, fine, I'll turn here and go down this path, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. It's one thing for us to willingly, maybe even begrudgingly, pick the path that Jesus calls necessary, but why in the world would we wholeheartedly and joyfully embrace that path? Well, that's why we need to pay very careful attention to what evidently Peter and the other disciples missed. Yes, Jesus said his path 
was going to lead to Jerusalem. It would lead to suffering and even death on a cross. But then Jesus said, on the third day, he, the Son of Man, must be raised to life. So yes, Jesus' path was going to lead to pain and death, but pain and death were not the destination of his path. Instead, victory and life were. Jesus' destination of the path that he chose was something far better than the destination would have been had he opted for Satan's plan to try and pursue those very same things only without the cross. Now, it might be tempting for us to look at Jesus and say, well, sure, he had it easy. I mean, not the crucifixion part. That was obviously pretty tough. But sure, he had it easy because he knew what was in store for him. He knew that after Good Friday, there was Easter Sunday. He knew that after the cross, there was the empty tomb. And so it was easy for him to pick that path because he already knew the destination. Yes, he did. And so do you. Even as Jesus points us down this path that will lead to pain, he also points us to the destination. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. In other words, whoever tries to avoid the necessary pain of self-denial will stumble and fall, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever puts self to death will find an even better life. Whoever is willing to say no to their ambitions and desires when they collide with the word of God or their neighbor's need is also at the very same time saying yes to something far better. The world is utterly silent about this kind of suffering. Pursue pain? The world says pursue pleasure, pursue happiness. Self-denial? The world hardly values anything more than self-fulfillment and self-expression. And yet the path that Jesus offers has a destination that is far better than anything the world can offer. And the destination of that path is just as inevitable as it was for Jesus. In fact, it is inevitable because of Jesus. Because Jesus willingly embraced his path to suffering and death the way that we so often don't, because he did that perfectly for us as our substitute the greatest obstacle that would otherwise stand in the way between us and the destination that God wants for us has been completely removed. Our sin and our guilt have been completely removed. That path has been paved all the way to its destination. That's not something that we ourselves must do. And so now whenever that opportunity for self-denial comes up, yes, we might have that painful opportunity to take our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, and deny them, set them down. But at the very same time, we are taking up, we are receiving, we are being offered the better, ba better, bigger, grander desires and ambitions that our God has for us. So embrace this path, yes, because its necessity is indisputable, but also because its glorious destination is inevitable. In other words, it's not like a detour, where eventually you end up at the place where you were going, but it just took you a little bit longer, and it was a little bit more difficult to get there. Instead, it's a detour where you actually end up at a destination that's far better than the one you had originally typed into your GPS. 
Imagine driving down the road and you know you need gas. And you know there's a gas station a little ways ahead down the road, but you also know that it's kind of small and dirty and run down. But then you come across a detour. You have to go a different way. And at first you're frustrated, but then as you're going down that detour, suddenly there it is, a quick trip. <laughs> or imagine you're driving down the road and the kids are starving and they won't stop complaining. And you know that just up the road there's a fast food restaurant, but you know the food is going to be cold and stale and the service slow. But then you hit a detour, and as you take that detour, suddenly there it is, a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so yes, stare down that path. That path where all your hopes and dreams, your desires and ambitions are found, and even stare down the path where hypothetically you would reach and achieve each and every single one of them. But then look at the path that Jesus points you down and realize that, yes, it may lead to pain and suffering of self-denial, but the destination of that path is so infinitely better than the one that you could draw for yourself. And so when you see that destination, that glorious, inevitable destination, that path is not just going to be one that you begrudgingly pick. It's going to be one that you wholeheartedly embrace. It's not just that you'll be willing to take your life and steer it down that path. You'll even be willing to step on it. Amen. Amen.